Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Take, for instance, just the acoustic isolation issues Richard mentioned. You know, we've got a theater here, but 50 feet over there, we've got a New York City subway running by the building. And we don't really want to have the rumble, even though that's not unusual in New York, to be in the theater and hear the hear the rumble when the subway goes by. You don't want to hear it in a new building. We didn't want to do that. We didn't want to do that. This is Detailed. An original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. Before we begin this episode, I have to give a shout out to two staff members at Kieran Timberlake, Jordan Tietelbaum and TJ Hunt, who were both in my CDT certification class last fall. And by the way, congratulations are now CDT certified. They were kind enough to facilitate my meeting our guest today. So Jordan and TJ, thank you very much. Now let's get down to business. The voices you heard in our opening were our guests, William Paxson of Davis Brody Bond and Richard Mayman of Kieran Timberlake. Will Paxson is a partner at Davis Brody Bond and leads the design of the firm's technologically complex academic projects, exploring innovations that encourage interdisciplinary collaboration and interaction. In all of Will's work, he focuses on the long-term use of buildings, addressing questions of how a building can be designed to offer lasting value for its occupants in the community, as well as how to integrate flexible, sustainable, and energy-efficient systems. He has created award-winning facilities for such notable institutions as Columbia, Princeton, Harvard, Northwestern, and Vanderbilt. Richard Maiman is a partner at Kieran Timberlake and collaborates across disciplines to achieve the integration and consensus needed to address some of architecture's most urgent issues. In more than 30 years leading projects at Kieran Timberlake, he has designed buildings that are deeply rooted in place and culture. He is an advocate for architectural innovation and has spoken internationally, advancing possibilities that come from investigations of sustainability, tectonics, design process, and construction methodology. His recent projects include the new U.S. Embassy in London and the East End Transformation of Washington University in St. Louis. He is currently working on projects at the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in Washington, D.C., the Kimmel Cultural Campus in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and a new U.S. consulate in Curacao. The project we are going to chat about today is the amazing John A. Paulson Center at NYU in New York. A quick reminder, as you listen along, click the link in our show notes to see the project and additional details that we discuss in this episode, or visit www.rcat.com slash podcast. 
The John A. Paulson Center, located on the southern edge of the NYU campus between Houston and Bleecker Streets, serves as a gateway between New York City and the university. This site was the Coles Gym. So built in the late 1970s, opened the early 80s, NYU was a different institution, largely a, um, a commuter oriented undergraduate experience with a smaller number of people coming from across the country and around the world. And the gym was built to fulfill its needs at that time. You know, amazingly, it didn't even have air conditioning and built in the early 80s, which alumni speak about not so fondly. Importantly for this conversation, though, it was only one story above grade and two stories below at the critical... Typical for Manhattan, (laughs) one stories tall. At the intersection of Houston and Mercer where Soho meets Greenwich Village. So a, a really underutilized site in Manhattan, part of the superblocks that were you know, cleared uh, in mid-20th century, adjacent as the IMP designed silver towers, just to the north, the blocks of uh, Washington Square Village, which are NYU housing. So uh, yeah, an underutilized site that was kind of crying out for something more. And NYU had this idea, you know, there was a long period before we were involved, to be sure, about approvals and some of it involving difficult relationships, relations. But once all of that was allowed to go forward, the idea was to create this vibrant new building, take advantage of its critical location on Houston Street at Mercer, a southern gateway to the university that would be able to host a number of programs that were sorely missing critical space on the Washington Square campus. And that's what was presented to us, was how do we create something that represents the university's vitality, its vibrance, its international presence, and create a real destination for the campus and a threshold coming from the south to the campus sort of precinct, if you will. Well, one thing we identified early on is that looking at the program, NYU had built up pent-up demand for, for new space, and they were struggling. Great academic programs like Tisch School of the Arts, Steinhardt, but not having comparable facilities to what the level of the educational program, the, the skill and talent of the faculty and the students. So there was sort of a wish list. On a suburban campus, this could have been handled six buildings, the gym over there and performing arts center over there and the student tower. But again, we're in Manhattan. So, you know, you don't do that when land is as precious as it is. So that was really the starting point from a programmatic point of view was here was a site that could actually accommodate uh, more than just a gym. And that was the beginning of, you know, this idea of having a real multi mixed use, multi-purpose. The architectural team of Davis Brody Bond and Karen Timberlake worked with NYU on the John A. Paulson Center, a 735,000-square-foot mixed-use academic building. With a prime site chosen and clear charge from the university, Karen Timberlake and Davis Brody Bond began their design process. We had a zoning, a maximum zoning envelope that we had to fill in. You know, that envisioned a tall tower at the corner of Mercer and Houston, where the faculty tower ended up, and had a cluster of four towers where the student housing would be. But we were able to reduce the student massing from four to three towers because we were able to fit NYU's program into less volume than anticipated and thereby have more access to natural light, separate the faculty from the students, and create really, we think, a stronger presence on the skyline. In those massing elements, we then at one point refine them and effectively split them in plan so that what is a block becomes two volumes moved against each other, if you will, which then gives multiple corners, more access to natural light and view, and a more dynamic presence from within the city. And lastly, less mass, less actual mass and visually less mass. So all those things happened as we worked on the design and evolved it and and went forward, not from day one. Day one, it, it, it would look a little uh, clunky compared to this, to, to be sure. And, you know, how to position the parts that would make the most sense. From the point of view of the owner, we had tremendous access to the individual user groups at NYU. 
we met with theater people literally all day on Saturday seminars, workshops, going through what their needs would be with multiple members of our team on board. The same with athletics, the same with general purpose classrooms, the same with the library people thinking about the study spaces throughout the building and athletics, etc. But what the building, what NYU afforded that I think proved to be so successful was the kind of building committee was not made up of the users. It was effectively university leadership and the goal being the university's sort of high level aspirations, what the building would mean for the university, how it extended the global reach of the university, what it meant to build new at this critical location after decades of building, you know, smaller buildings. And they were able to have a sense of guidance for the building that was not based on individual needs. And I think the combination of working with them at the big scale and then working with individual departments, schools, or sectors of the university on the programmatic elements, the combination of that is what yielded the great project. Designed to optimize interactions between diverse student groups and academic disciplines, the building includes a wide-ranging program that begins below grade. Below grade, two stories below grade, athletics. So that's essentially recreating the program that existed in the Cole building. Modernizing it, though, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. We decided that (laughs) air conditioning wasn't a bad idea. Yeah. (laughs) Good thing. Yeah. It has a four-court gym that's for uh, varsity basketball, varsity volleyball. It has a six-lane pool. It has facilities for wrestling. It has facilities for fencing. It has squash courts. It has team locker rooms, visiting team locker rooms. It's, it's extensive. Okay, so at grade and of the first five floors is essentially the academic part of the building, and that was per Will's comment, meeting this incredible need for the Tisch School of the Arts, graduate acting and undergraduate drama, meeting those spaces that they were essentially renting off campus. So you lose the sense of community and lose the sense of kind of ownership by people hanging out around the space throughout a semester. Instead, it would be periodic and also maybe not of the highest quality for rented spaces. And then at the same time, general purpose classrooms So we have 58 general purpose classrooms, just NYU grew, but there weren't the kind of 22-person undergraduate history, English, psychology, et cetera, classroom spaces. Then we have 420 beds for undergraduate housing for freshmen, organized into two residential colleges with social spaces, an adjacent uh, green roof terrace, and at the corner of Houston and Mercer, a apartment tower effectively for faculty, 42 units for faculty, which is a a big component of NYU's role in attracting faculty and its ascendant status in recent decades. The building sets a new paradigm for multi-use facilities at NYU. Richard explains a bit more about the student housing component. We designed them so there'd be fantastic views and light in the rooms. They're modest-sized bedrooms, as you would imagine, You do have to take into account New York City real estate. It's a mix of single, doubles, and triple rooms in suites. And the suites are organized with their own bathroom. Very small living space. The idea is you're living outside the suite. And then there's a common shared uh, dining experience. So they're very nice freshman spaces that will be, we think, in great demand. One element of the program that is truly impressive is the performing arts spaces. The coordination between architecture, structure, and acoustics is remarkable. There are four performing arts, primary performing arts spaces. Three of them are theaters. The largest is the proscenium theater with a full fly tower, which amazingly NYU's never had. They've had some theaters, but never had the the full fly tower, which meant that that experience of acting on the full stage or doing set design or directing had to be done off campus. They never had that. There are two other theaters. And the idea was these theaters are primarily for teaching. So they're all different for a range of opportunities and experience, but they're also all available for public performance so that 
when a performance is given that there can be an audience coming in from outside. And so that's part of the experience too. They're not as many people in the audience as you would have on the Broadway theater, but it's, it's a comparable experience. That's important. And the fourth one that we would mention is an orchestra rehearsal hall that's sized for a full orchestra. And that was how the program started, but that really evolved. In addition to that role, it's really turned into a small recital hall and a performance space in addition to the rehearsal function that it has. I want to emphasize that aspect of a program having an identity at the beginning, but then transform through conversation and design. I think that's something that happened throughout the course of this project. The orchestra rehearsal space that became a recital space is a great example. You know, it was meant to be a, a dark space that would have the footprint of an orchestra, you know, seating a lot of people buried into the building. But as we worked on the design and NYU began to refine their needs, it seemed that this space could have double or triple or quadruple duty as a recital room, as a multi-purpose space, as a place for events. And it moved to the perimeter of the building. So the performers are sitting in front of natural light and view of uh, across the street on Mercer Street with the late 19th, early 20th century streetscape evident. And we were able to work with our acoustical and, and theater consulting specialist consultants to create an isolated space that would meet all the needs, yet be exposed to uh, view and natural light. And that's just one of those great things that happened during the course of the design process that NYU really embraced. So picture this. From the structural point of view, Severed, and the acoustical point of view of Jaffe Holden. You're in the proscenium theater that Will spoke about earlier, 350 seats. It's a uh, orchestra, uh, quite sloped, so you can enter top and bottom on two different floors and a balcony. Above it is another theater, one of the 150-seat theaters above the seating space of, of, the, of the auditorium. Below it is pool and, and gym. So you're isolating from the city outside, the subway outside, but you're also isolating from within. And, you know, tremendous skill required to think about vibration, isolation, you know, not to mention the volumes and the gravity load and transferring. So it, it was a, a puzzle throughout. You know, the other challenge is if you were just looking at it from an acoustic point of view, you'd say, well, we'd like to have a fairly heavy, solid structure, cast in place, reinforced concrete frame. But we're putting it over, we've got these transfers to deal with. So the long span transfers would argue for a lightweight structure, and we have to somehow deal with both of those. So the structure is not as heavy as it would be maybe in another scenario, but it's certainly not a lightweight structure either because of the isolation aspects. We have a very heavy steel frame for the base of the building. The, the first five floors above you know, a concrete perimeter and you know steel steel trusses we talked about the floor floor height trusses that occur in a few places to allow the transfer but above it is student residential on one side faculty residential on the other and they're working with a structural engineer we used a hybrid system which is a steel vertical structure with effectively lightweight concrete plank as both structure and and surface so without a tremendous amount of beams. So that way we tailored the structure for both the spatial needs, in other words, residential, you want to build tighter floor to floor, but maximize volume. So that approach allows you to effectively minimize the dimension structures taking up in the usable volume, but you also have a lighter load and you can have columns more frequently. Whereas below, we want columns more widely spaced. We want flexibility now and long-term for you know, reshuffling some of the spaces. We have large theaters to accommodate, and we have large loads because of assembly. Adjacent to the proscenium theater is the Commons, a light-filled and expansive space that forms the heart of the building and of student activity, reinforcing the building's openness and accessibility. 
in our early feedback sessions with NYU. We met students, we met faculty administrators in a variety of circumstances. One that was particularly memorable was in a large meeting space where we had people at individual tables of eight or 10 brainstorming, and then each table speaking about their ideas. And one of the things we heard from a number of people at different roles in the university, you know, from new students to seasoned faculty, that there was a lack of shared space at NYU that was NYU. In other words, those who know the campus, Washington Square, which is a city public park, effectively acts as NYU's quad in a way. And could there be an interior version of that? You know, recognizing that, you know, of course, life of NYU takes place at the adjacent cafes and bars. That's the history of Greenwich Village. But could there be spaces that are shared in the building, in this new building, given its large footprint, that could be a, um, a gathering place, a destination, something unprogrammed? So this idea of a commons began to emerge as something that would be desirable. And okay, then how to make it great have food as part of it. And therefore, the cafe, as we were talking about a few minutes ago, is adjacent. Make it naturally lit. So we were able to design it. It's floor through at the second level with views east to the traditional streetscape of New York, west to the IMP Towers and the Picasso sculpture. So natural light at both sides. It incorporates curving geometries. So the view expands as one moves toward the perimeter. It has artwork that has been commissioned by NYU. It acts as a point of circulation for the building. And it's a key part of the circulation strategy in the building as a place of meeting, as a destination, as a threshold for the rest of the building. So that's the commons. It's the heart of the building. And we're already seeing it put to use. To deliver this incredible facility, you can imagine it would take a very experienced and unified team. Team does include a tremendous amount of expertise. And, you know, we can we can speak to some of the particular challenges and people who helped us through them, but it it definitely was a highly collaborative effort. And it starts with the two architecture firms. It was a shared approach between Davis Brody Bond and Kieran Timberlake. We had moments of focus but it was essentially shared across the project. And from day one of programming to the final days right now of punch listing, both firms actively engaged throughout. The consultants, it kind of starts with the ground. The civil engineer, Langen, working on the excavation and the footprint of the Coles Gym was actually west of our site. So we shifted that based on city planning desire to recreate the street front along Mercer Street, the traditional street front, and create a pedestrian walkway approximately where Green Street used to be prior to the superblock. So the ground shifted. We have the subway adjacent where it's a fairly deep excavation, a tremendous amount of complexity in the, in the ground. And it starts there, goes up through the structure, which I think we want to talk a bit about structural design, systems in the building, and, and working it through. And then the, this very specific requirements of certain programs. We had a specialist for athletics, Sasaki, worked with us on the athletic program and the design, aquatic specialty for the pool, theaters requiring theater consultants and acoustical consultants, uh, the facade, Heinches on the facade, all you know, really instrumental to, to working collaboratively with, with the two architecture firms. And that's the only way it really would have worked. Take, for instance, just the acoustic isolation issues Richard mentioned. You know, we've got a theater here, but 50 feet over there, we've got a New York City subway running by the building. And we don't really want to have the rumble, even though that's not unusual in New York, to be in the theater and hear the, hear the rumble when the subway goes by. You don't want to hear it in a new building. We didn't want to do that. We didn't want to do that. Richard mentioned Hentges Consulting's contribution to the building facade. You seriously need to take a look at the photos of this very unique design. Various details are utilized to add texture and dynamism to each elevation, and even program elements in some cases. The facade's actually a big part of the strategy for sustainability on the building. So we knew once we established that circulation mode that we would need to you know, optimize glazing in the base of the building, the first five floors. So what did that mean? We modeled areas of higher solar gain, so we'd understand across the year where those would be. 
And as you could imagine, the southwest corner, but there's areas even on the uh, northeast where because of the adjacent buildings and early morning sun, you get that. And at the same time, we had this strong need to fit a very large building. This is 735,000 square feet. I don't think we mentioned that yet in this conversation. 735,000 square feet, how to fit that in comfortably in the context. So, you know, traditional late 19th century New York to one side, 1950s and 60s New York on the other side, Soho to the south, historic district, et cetera, Greenwich Village historic district, the modulation of the facades, how to get shade and shadow and texture in a way that would be complementary to the traditional urban fabric of New York City, but not imitating it, not you know using that as a direct reference, but as an indirect reference. So all of these ideas gelled into what we call the wedge panels, where glazing is effectively turned on an angle from the facade and the flat panel at the base of the building that's 90 degrees to the facade is facing south. So thereby we gain natural light and view, but we block the solar gain. And we position that in the areas where we identified there'd be the greatest solar gain, coupled with this idea about a composition that would be in scale and provide the texture of the traditional buildings. And I think that's one of the you know, one of the successes of the building. So the glazing is a sophisticated, high-performance glazing. We worked closely with Heinches, the facade consultant on this. We have two layers of low-E coatings at the lower parts of the building to, to prevent unwanted solar gain. We have a frit pattern across all of the facades, all the lower facades. Number one, in response to uh, bird strikes, so the glass becomes visible to birds. This was well ahead of New York City's requirement for that. We were looking into that. So the glass is visible to birds, and then it becomes denser where there's a calculated higher solar gain. And then the glazing becomes more opaque as one moves into the residential parts of the building. And the what we call the wedges are, are transformed in typology at the student residential. It's an individual bay for each, each room. And then adjacent is glass that's actually opaque, so highly insulative behind it. And at the faculty tower, the wedge is transformed into a inset panel that is actually angled from bottom to top inward between transparent glass, giving texture and pattern to the tower at the corner. So glazing is a big part of our strategy. The others are we tie into NYU's Cogen plant. It's a highly efficient plant, a couple blocks away expanded for this building. And then we're taking advantage of unused waste heat, the waste heat from that plant, which was not used before. So it's being used for dehumidification on this building. We have 25,000 square feet of green roofs. So we are effectively dealing with stormwater at the point of the roof. It's accessible to students for a big part of the sixth floor. And then other areas are meant to be viewed only, and we expect that you know landscape to really flourish starting this spring. In addition, there's a significant cistern below grade to store other stormwater and release it very slowly into the into the system. Another big aspect is just the design of the systems. You know, designing them with uh, BR plus A and in consultation with Atelier Ten to be low energy use, high performance, to reduce loads throughout the building. And then, you know, lastly to add is that perimeter circulation zone does not have to be, with the agreement of NYU, does not have to be at the same level of comfort as interior spaces. So we effectively have a layer of space around the high use parts of the building that do not need to be tempered as carefully. And that's another contributor toward the overall goal of lead gold. The air handling systems, you don't see them, but the desiccant dehumidification is a terrific thing to be able to add in addition to the filtration. But desiccant dehumidification needs a heat source to dry it out. That's why the cogen waste heat was so, so important to making that work. And that was particularly important for the athletic program, given the number of people that are potentially in the gym for, for special events. Richard has mentioned a couple of times that there is a green roof on this project. If you are a frequent listener of this show, you know that green roofs are one of my least enjoyable components to specify, but I can't resist finding out more about them. 
we worked with Michael Van Valkenburg's uh, New York office on landscape and with Jenny on waterproofing. So lots of coordination among all of us, the architects, structural engineer, but waterproofing and roofing coupled with landscape to create something that would be long-lived. And that was the goal. We didn't get a, we didn't get a pushback. Some, some owners are a little wary of green roofs. Maybe they had a bad experience through another. Did not have that pushback at NYU. They've had success in the past. So that paved the way, so to speak, for doing this collaboratively and successfully. And I, I think, you know, another aspect of it, we talked about stormwater, we talked about students experiencing life in the city at an elevated point, a campus that generally lacks landscape and how important that is. There's also the view from the neighbors. And the green roofs are at many of the mid-level roofs, which are seen by you know, literally hundreds of, of neighbors. So it fit the story of the project so well that I have to say, Yes, in other projects, there are moments when it, it has caused a roadblock. That wasn't the case here. The building is essentially composed of a public and a private component. A portion of the green roof occurs at the transition point between the two functions at level six. Level six is the transition between the podium and the upper towers, primarily student residential. And it becomes, in effect, a a sky lobby, not really a sky lobby, but it's a sky lobby so that students who live in the building are going to come up to level six on the public elevators and then transition into an interior lobby entrance. But it was important and really great to be able to, that level is really exciting because it's no longer the simple rectangle of the podium. It's an articulated, crenellated plan with outdoor spaces intermingled between the tower components. And the largest of the outdoor spaces is open to students. And it deals with, um, from a windscreen, there's a tempered glass wall around that, that provides safety and, and wind protection. And I think students will be happy to be out there, maybe not every day of the year, but the vast majority of the days of the year, it will be comfortable. And it's right where one of the major food service points is as well. That's also the level that's got the orchestra rehearsal room on it, that's sitting in effect as an element on the roof, as a glass box. And that's fun too, because that's the one performing arts space that didn't want to be or need to be uh, fully enclosed for light control. Now, with this extensive program and lofty design goals, there were no doubt some challenges along the way. How to take an incredibly multi-use building and give it an organizational quality that would have legibility, have a, a sense of order, perhaps a sense of wayfinding that would be intuitive for people without, without a tremendous amount of signage, not an airport, and how to have it work as a coherent work of architecture. I think that's ultimately the, the greatest challenge design-wise for this project. So one of the great moments in the design process was working with the committee. We had already established, you know, the program was on its way. We started to look at ways that we could begin to imagine the puzzle of these three-dimensional volumes fitting together, but how to give it order. And we proposed one strategy that was you know, more conventional. It was central centralized hallways with some double height and triple height spaces. And then the other was moving circulation to the perimeter. And we quickly began to favor that. What did circulation on the perimeter do? One, everyone shares natural light and view. So no matter what you, who you are in the building, you're seeing the city, you're enjoying natural light. Two, by doing that, it gives you a natural sense of, or an intuitive sense of wayfinding because you can sense north, south, east, west, by landmark buildings, perhaps those who observe the, the light from the sun becomes an orienting device. Three, from the NYU larger perspective, it makes a building that you know might otherwise have classrooms at the perimeter with shades pulled down or theater spaces that don't want light at all, active, vibrant, lively, people moving. And it gave us the opportunity to create multiple places to gather 
sort of lounge and study spaces that are dispersed throughout the circulation in the building, and to also really encourage people to walk upstairs and not use elevators. Yes, there's elevators. Yes, the building is completely accessible for everyone, but there's generous wide stairs positioned in full view, and it becomes part of the sequence of experiencing the building. So therefore, back to the commons, you enter the building primarily north and south through two primary lobbies, and then from each one, you come up to floor two is the sequence into the commons and then disperse through the rest of the building. And that's its function is key to that circulation approach, reversing convention, putting circulation at the perimeter, and then having it largely as a, a glazed surface around it. Well, each of the program components in and of itself had challenges. They're very technical requirements, particularly for performing arts, for music, the gymnasium, student housing, all those components. We've talked about it as a puzzle, a Rubik's Cube of making it all work together. But as Richard said, really, the biggest challenge was a coherent circulation system to tie them together in a logical way. And I think we had, we felt that the daylight and perimeter circulation was going to be great. But now that we've seen it in action for the last couple of weeks, it really is terrific. And by the location of the building, we're just fortunate to have great views in every direction. And they're different. They're not the same view. The view to the north with the Empire State Building, the view to the south with the Woolworth Building, the view to the east, there's the Louis Sullivan Building, view to the west, I.M. Pei. It's just a fabulous location to have a building that it's fortunate enough to have four exposed exterior walls with daylight and circulation. In construction, the challenge of the building's complexity called for greater team collaboration, which ultimately benefited project delivery. The main difference that I see with with this project and projects now is just how much coordination work went into the three-dimensional computer model of the building. And that wasn't just our model. That was what Turner Construction did was they set up a studio for the subcontractors to come into one room and, I don't know, probably 12, 15 workstations with different subcontractors, our engineers, architects, routing all the systems through a very complex building. Now, we could have made life simple for everybody by adding two feet to every floor, but then we would have violated the zoning, or we would have had to give up a floor. But that effort was on the part of a huge number of people. The result was, though, that when fabrications were brought to the field, they most times fit and went in properly the first time, as opposed to maybe 20 years ago, where there would be arguments in the field about whose pipe was here and whose pipe was there and whose conduit that is, and didn't solve every single issue, but it had a tremendous, you know, that was an investment of time and money that really, I think, paid off and allowed the building to be completed, in a, given the size and complexity of the building, in a tight schedule, and again, in a pandemic and with supply chain issues. The design and construction considerations that we've discussed all carried through the details of product and material selection. We would start with the curtain wall. The unitized curtain wall was built by Permis de Lisa. We've both worked with them on past projects, important projects. The selection of the glass and the coatings on the glass was a lot of effort on the part of the team to get that adjusted and get it optimized for performance. The curtain wall is, is obviously it's a unitized curtain wall so that it could be installed within a tight construction schedule. Once the structural frame was up, Richard already mentioned the integration of a precast plank in the residential portions of the tower. If the residential towers were freestanding, probably Uh, would have been a flat plate concrete structure would have been heavier. The precast plank with an integrated steel beam member gave us the benefit of reducing the thickness of the slab within the steel frame. So you get a little bit of the effect that you get in New York City with pre-war apartment buildings where 
you see a lower ceiling beam around a lower soffit around the perimeter of a room, but the ceiling is able to go up in the middle of the room. So it has a nice, it has a nice feel from that point of view. I know we have special products for the acoustic isolation. The foundation, the primary columns that come down onto foundations are actually isolated with those products. And those are like four inch thick, specialized pads dealing with the subway vibration. So the first thing you want to do is you want to keep the subway vibration from coming up through the columns because that, that could migrate up through the building. Then beyond that, every time you have a venue, each of the theaters has an outer box and an inner box. The inner box is isolated and it's on its own isolation system, be they in some cases pads, in other cases uh, acoustic vibration isolating spring, spring mounts. And then there's the particular detailing to make sure that when you install the inner wall, it's isolated from the outer wall. We don't have any, sometimes mistakes are made in the field and two things are supposed to be separate acoustically get tied together because some piece of construction debris is left in the cavity. And so there's a lot of work to make sure that that doesn't happen. And those are just the sort of the physical objects of the structure. As you might imagine with performing arts, the the IT infrastructure, the AV infrastructure, all the low voltage components, which have taken on a life of their own in newer buildings, that's all there. You don't, you don't see it, but it's in the background. But when you go into the orchestra rehearsal room and you look at the control booth, there's a whole network of electronics in there and all the venues are tied together so that from that control booth, you can see what's going on in, in each of the theaters and other spaces in the building. You know, NYU's got students on campuses all around the world. And the idea of the technology was that you could have two students performing together, doing a duet. And one of them's in New York and one of them is, is halfway around the world. And the system has to be good enough and fast enough so that that's a real it's a real performance between two or more musicians. So to go from the high tech and the digital and the global to detailing inside the building, we were looking for a way that we could introduce warmth and character in the spaces through the architectural design and geometries and materials that would perhaps offset from the rectilinear geometry and crystalline quality of the exterior. So the interior incorporates a more organic curves and plan and section. Part of it was also the modeling of how people move through the space. We have a couple thousand people changing classes at times, and by actually curving the corners, we have better flow. We actually modeled that through uh, software that uh, Arab developed. But then how to articulate it? And we looked at a variety of materials and using American ash as a wood species was very appealing in that it's, you know, it's available. It's, it's nearly a local material. It's able to be finished in a lot of different ways. And that's exactly what we did. We have that as the kind of running theme as a secondary material throughout the building. So when you're in the commons, and in the dramatic stare down to athletics, it's a whitewash finish. It's it's light. You can see the grain, but it's quite it's quite light. It's fabricated by by the CNC in a very careful pattern that acts as a kind of screen. And then when you go to uh, student uh, residential and lounges that are at the performing arts part of the building, it's a natural finish. It's the war the natural warmth of the wood. And then deeper in the uh, 140, 150 seat stages, and then a, a dark basalt color, almost a purplish black in the proscenium theater. But again, the same wood used throughout. So you see that, you know, for those who really are looking, similar grain pattern and quality of that, of that wood and durability of that wood. And it's not just a veneer put on a particle board. It's a real three-dimensional solid piece of material. So it has a reality to it, which is really nice. Durable and sustainable. Yeah. Another part of the sustainability story. Yeah. With every project experience, lessons are revealed. Richard and Will had thoughtful insights about the future of mixed-use buildings and their relationship to the community within and the surrounding community. 
it, not a new idea, but it really reinforced the idea that there's a richness in doing a mixed-use building as opposed to a single-purpose building. I still see a lot of campus master plans where future buildings are laid out as a number of blocks. There's six of them, seven sites, and they're labeled that this block is going to be engineering school and this block is going to be housing. Universities and campuses are more complex than that. And on a larger building, we felt, and I think the lesson learned is that there's a real richness that's possible with a mixed-use building that you just don't get having five different, five separate buildings spread out on a campus. So I'm very encouraged by that. I think the things that we hope to see, we're seeing now and, and beyond our, our expectations in terms of how it's working, how students are responding to the building. They're still discovering the building. We haven't seen yet the building fully up and running, right? We're still moving into some of the program components and starting to see little YouTube videos and of students exploring, exploring the building and, and talking about it and showing it off. And it's, it's great. The other component that goes along with that is the transparency. I think we felt for a long time that there are exciting and wonderful things going on in buildings on campuses. A lot of times you don't really know what's going on. You don't sense the dynamic quality of the students who are in the building or the faculty who are teaching. And we wanted to see if that could be expressed and that that would make the building a more dynamic framework for these sort of activities that are going on. And we'd like to do that again. We'd like to learn how to do it even better. And that would, that would be sort of my hope for future, future projects. My response is, uh, I think, parallel to Will's, but I would extend it beyond the university. And that is thinking about mixed use in a different way than has been thought of in the past. You know, we're all thinking about downtowns here in Philadelphia. I think that the office space is 40% occupied on a, on a regular day. I don't mean leased, but occupied given the uh, hybrid work situation. So the street doesn't feel, the streets don't feel busy like they used to and doesn't support the coffee shops. They've, some of them have closed or the dry cleaners. And what about the people who clean the buildings at night? There, less of them are required. How do we remake downtowns? And I think the more hybrid approach to program and, and really thinking about it dramatically the way this building does may be one of the answers. Now, I know that existing buildings don't lend themselves to this kind of multi-use, of course, but the idea that you're thinking about these various programs that are used intensively at different times of the day, even different points of the week, could really be beneficial to the next stage of urban development when you know Class A office space is no longer the kind of quote-unquote trophy building. And I'd like to think that the incredible mixed use here is perhaps a glimpse into a kind of future for city development. By bringing together a diverse mix of spaces into a single building, the Paulson Center encourages connection and community engagement. The university set out to create a multidisciplinary community commensurate with its reputation, along with its creative and academic diversity. I would say the team of Davis Brody Bond and Kieran Timberlake delivered. I really enjoyed this conversation with Richard and Will. I hope this episode sparks a new idea, helps you solve a problem that you've been working through, or inspires the mark that you want to leave on this world, on your path to world domination. We have an advantage of being architects, which is, it really is kind of an altruistic profession we have the opportunity to do work of lasting value. There are challenges with that. And sometimes how that actually plays out remains to be seen. But we can do something as architects in the design, in the process of pulling together a program that has the potential of really being beneficial for 20 years or 30 years or 50 years. And I think that's that's probably unusual for many professions that people can be very good at what they do but if you came back 20 years later there wouldn't you wouldn't be able to put your finger on 
oh, I was involved in that decision or that that thing over there. Buildings do have that. Now, that, that's for better or for worse, right? If you do a, a bad building, it's going to be there for a long time. And that's unfortunate. That's why we get involved in adaptive reuse and renovations. Sometimes there's a great pleasure in fixing a problem that's been around for a while and making something better. But that's something that architects have the opportunity to do. And I think I think it's it's a great value, personally, to think that when we do something right and it works out, that it will be there for a long time for others. I mean, as an architect, one of the really great aspects of this profession is you are changing the world in some small way with each project and setting a path, perhaps building community, bringing people together, solving issues you know, and problems. One thing that's been interesting for me lately is I've been an architect now for over 30 years and long enough that I'm actually working on renovating projects I worked on before. And that gives you a, a really great insight into use and time and maybe what worked and what didn't work and what needs to be maintained and preserved and what doesn't. And that's pretty fantastic. I think that the real opportunity right in front of us in this whole profession and everyone related to it including spec writers like yourself, is the carbon footprint, is sustainability. The built environment contributes a tremendous amount to all the problems we have. 30 or 40% of carbon energy used. So the push for electrification, for decarbonizing the grid, for low energy, for recycled materials and renewables, we need in the next 10 years to advance that like at a much more quick pace than it's been happening to date. And I think that's it's not just like a desire or a nice thing. It's an absolute, it's an ethical obligation. But at the same time, the spaces need to be beautiful and compelling and exciting and because that's ultimately what makes them sustainable when they're beloved, when they're really loved by their community. And that is something that is on, on my mind and I think on many of our minds as architects every day and we need to fulfill that and that's that's our obligation to a society looking forward thanks for listening if you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos details and more related project and product information that we discussed today while you're there take a look around rcat.com for over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.